This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome back to UC Santa Barbara's Distinguished Speaking Series. We have with us tonight Jim Zarley. Um, I enjoy all of our speakers. I've really been um, anticipating Jim's talk. Uh, I've gotten to know him through a board that we're on together. And I'm telling you, it's an education for me to sit on a board with Jim Zarley. Um, I learn something every time we get together. And it's just a treat for me. So I know that um, you guys are going to learn quite a bit as well. Jim has had a, an amazing career. He spent 19 years with RCA. And in that time, he got to be involved in a number of high-level positions, worked on some restructuring, some workouts, going into divisions that were having trouble and helping turn those around. He focused on a number of things while he was there, but um, primarily sales and operations. And as I've told you guys before, if you can sell, you can do anything in business. Learn how to sell. Get some experience selling. You'll use it all the time, no matter, what your, no matter where your career ends up taking you. So after all of that time at RCA, Jim realized, hey, I want to go out and run my own thing. I've been running these divisions, and I've had a lot of autonomy here within RCA, but I want to really go out and do it on my own. And so in the mid-'80s, he, he um, purchased his first company, which was Quantech, um, and they did a number of things during their, um, their tenure, but one I found the most interesting is they automated the California Department of Motor Vehicles in the mid-1980s. And I'm sure that was frictionless and no bureaucracy and really easy. Can't you imagine the, uh, the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles in the 1980s? Ended up selling that company successfully to ADP, which is a, a large uh, data company. In 96, he became chairman and CEO of Best Internet, which was a pioneer in the web hosting business. So remember, 1996, this is when the Internet's really happening. The World Wide Web was still new, and hosting websites was a, was a, was a new thing. Jim took that company through a couple different mergers. He stayed on as COO until the final merger with Vario, and that happened in 1999. So while he was still working at the hosting company, he made an investment in a company called ValueClick. That was in April of 1998. In January of 1999, he came on, on board um, as president of ValueClick, and one year later, he became the CEO. He held that post, took it all the way through its initial public offering. He stayed on as CEO until 2012, and then he stayed on as chairman until very, very recently when, the company, when he led the company's sale to um, Alliance Data for $2.3 billion. So Jim took that company from its nascent very beginning, through its IPO, all the way through to a successful multi-billion dollar sale. And the company's name at the, at the time of the sale was Conversant. They had recently done a rebranding. Um, and that name is, has been in the news quite a bit uh, lately because of that sale. In addition, during those last 10 years when Jim was quite busy with ValueClick, he was also served on a number of boards, including the Texas Roadhouse restaurant chain. And the reason I mention that is that's something you'll see throughout Jim's career. He's, he's been an internet pioneer. He's had a high-tech career. But he's also had a career in non-tech or in low-tech. Um, and there's, there's opportunities in both. I want, I want you guys to get, if you get nothing else out of this talk, understand that it's not all about software or high-tech or the Internet. There's lots of great businesses out there that don't involve um, any technology or very little technology. So he's currently spending his time on a number of private boards. I mentioned the one that I'm fortunate to get to um, uh, spend time with Jim on. He also has five grandkids, two, two um, sons that are both accomplished in, in their own right. He gets to spend time with them. And as you guys know, I don't just focus on bringing in folks that have been very, very successful in their professional life without having a balanced full life in other areas. And I also like to bring folks in that um, could be an example to you of philanthropy. 
And Jim is a great example of that. Through the Zarley Family Foundation, they've helped a number of philanthropic organizations, including the Boys Club, um, Boys Town. They've worked for... Um, They've worked to fight um, or helped AIDS research with the um, Broadway Cares program. And it's one thing to write checks, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and I hope all of you get in a position in your lives where you can do that. But it's another thing to give of your time. That's actually a much more precious um, commodity. And Jim and his family have done that. They've led trips to Vietnam and Mexico where they've actually partnered with the Starkey Hearing Foundation. Um, and they've literally brought the gift of hearing to thousands of people in those countries that simply um, wouldn't have that gift um, without um, the Zardy Foundation's help. Let's welcome Jim to our class. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Jim. And so Did I Jim, do all that stuff, really? Well, you and a couple other people. I just yeah. amalgamated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like a novel where you take yeah. different characters and you composite. I was getting tired. <laughs> They'll edit that. Nobody will ever see that. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, It'll good. be two seconds. It'll be Jim Zarley. <laughs> so, 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 Jim, I wanna, I'd really like to start kind of at the beginning. Um, I understand your first job was extremely glamorous, and sort of from there, it just got better. Uh, that would be the truck washing job. Yes. Is that the one? You- <laughs> so the second shift. It's kind of interesting because um, one of the things uh, I had always had a passion to uh, to get a career going while I was in the military. And I went from high school directly into the military, and and I I was able to get a, a view of how other people live. My last uh, year in the military, I worked for the commanding general of the 101st Airborne. And, and so I spent a lot of time at the officers club and seeing how other people live. And I said, this is the way I want to live. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I also realized that when I got out of the military and I looked at the want ads in the newspaper that I didn't qualify for very much. Right. That I didn't really have any experience. So I need to go out and get a job and start building experience. So I, I did take the truck, truck washing job. It was second shift to, on, to boot. But it was with a company that was large and had lots of div, you know, different varying things. And I knew that, that it was just an opportunity for me to go in and show them how, how I was going to work hard. Right. And that if I did that and I was open-minded and communicated with people, that they would see that I was enthusiastic and I had something to offer. Right. I didn't... I didn't um, didn't end up staying there. I actually ended up going to RCA with an opportunity there. That was an interesting um, uh, d- d- reason why I was hired there as well. Yeah, so I, I do love the reason why. So he, he had that glamorous job washing trucks on the second shift, and from there he, you were right, went right to the top of RCA, almost literally, right? Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> so I thought I was really going with a great opportunity, and it turned out to be a great opportunity, a great career, and a great company to work for. Um, uh, but the reason they hired me is because of my experience of being a paratrooper in the military. They thought I wasn't afraid of heights, so they had me climbing all the towers and putting the antennas up on top, and I was scared to death. I was so frightened. I worked very, very hard to get off as quickly as I could. But, you know, I said... You were the fastest see, worker they I see, had. I said, you don't understand. We had parachutes when we jumped out of the plane. I don't have a parachute when I'm up on that tower. So, so uh, but that was the beginning of a... Of a of a great career with right. a great company, and I right. stayed there for 19 years. Well, I think there's a great lesson for students. Um, 
No, first, uh, a couple of lessons there. First one is the, the Washington truck job. I don't think that was his ambition. I don't think that's what you, you knew that wasn't the end of the road, but it was a right. good company and you wanted to show that you had the right attitude. Yep. And the same thing with RCA, although at the time it was a very respected company and there was a lot of opportunities there, yes. climbing poles and fixing antennas wasn't necessarily what you wanted to do either. No. But when confronted with that first opportunity, your answer was yes. Yes. And I think that's something that you know students really want to emulate is, even though what you're doing right out of school may not be exactly what you want to do long term, come in with the right attitude. Come in with the right attitude and learn, yes. and and you can write your own path, as as Jim has. In fact, the uh, you know every opportunity that came up with RCA, and I I asked for some of the things that were unpleasant to do, because I felt it was an opportunity for me to show what I what I could do mm-hmm. if I were put into a situation that someone else couldn't correct or couldn't fix that right. you know if I could prove that it would do. not only it, it allowed me to to go back to those want ads and say okay I've done that I've done that I've done that I now am more qualified and can be a little more choosy about what I do in my future right but it was all in an effort to kind of prepare myself to have my own business someday that was always, always the, had that, in, in that was always the ambition is to have my own business of some kind. Well, I've heard you say that every human is an entrepreneur, and I think you just sort of referenced that, where you always knew at some point in your career you'd have your own business. Well, what do you mean when you say every human is an entrepreneur? Well, every human has an asset, and that's themselves. And, and just as when I came out of the military and I realized that I didn't have experience, I, I, I knew that I had me right. and that I was willing to work and that I love people, I love, I love uh, being competitive, so that, to try and be the best at whatever I'm doing. Right. Um, but I felt that, you know, what, what do I have as an asset? What was it? A willingness to work hard. I was young. I was open to learn. Uh, I wanted to prove my, my, my value. Mm-hmm. And those are all things that need to be built in you in order to be a successful entrepreneur. Right. Yeah. Yep, so. Those are the elements of it. And I think, I think you guys should ask yourself that question. You know, what are the assets that you have at this point in your career? You may think, well, shoot, I'm just graduating from school. I don't have that much. But you certainly have all of those things Jim referenced. You know, you have the attitude. The, hopefully you have the right attitude. You have youth. You have passion. You want to learn. You're curious. And you take that into the workplace. And, again, that's going to be welcomed by uh, most, healthy, uh, most healthy companies. So when you, when, you, when you say that an entrepreneur needs to f- define you, you know, in other words, you need to define um, what makes you, what, what, how did you go through that journey? Was it just a matter of taking all of these different jobs and finding out what you did, did like and didn't like, or did it go beyond that? Uh, each job I took uh, had some challenge within it. Uh, as I continued to grow inside RCA, they would, if I, if I, Turn something around, like the little branch in Peoria, Illinois, was the first one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, you folks won't remember this, but in 1968 and 69, there was a law passed called the Carter Act. And what that um, what that was was the beginning of the breakup of AT and T. And it was an opportunity for companies to put private telephone systems into businesses and and uh, and, and primarily just businesses. And uh, RCA was very big in the hotel industry. 
I saw that as an opportunity. I was 25 years old. I said, we're going to take this little branch in Peoria, Illinois, and we're going to make the fastest growing branch in the country. We're going to do that by going to every hotel south of Chicago, all the way over to St. Louis, and we're going to sell them a telephone system. And we're going to show them the new law and why we can save them a lot of money. And I started hiring people, and we were the fastest growing uh, branch, in, in this little branch in Peoria with about 12 employees. It was great fun. We were all having a lot of fun because we were all young and we were all you know, breaking the records within the company, so we all were, were having a great time doing it. Yep. And then from that, sent me to another branch and then a district and then a region, then a division of the company over the years. And each one uh, had something about it. One thing I, I, I felt was my greatest strength is uh, the love of people and the desire to build a team. And yes, it's work, but I looked at it as a game. It was serious, but it was still a game. And I knew that if I had a good quarterback or I had a good halfback, and this person's going to do this part of the job, this person's going to do that part of the job, and, and, and they become my business partners, that we could build something pretty fantastic together. We'd have a, not just build it, but also have a lot of fun doing it. Because... For me, it was, never about, it was never about the money. It was, it, it, was, it was about having fun. And I learned at a very young age that no one had fun if they consistently lose money. <laughs> it, I, you may have it fun for just a little while, but somebody's going to end your party. <laughs> and so uh, to me, with the people that I grew companies with and businesses with over the years, I always focus on, you know, if we do this, this, and this, we can have a lot of fun. And the foundation of it is grow it and make money doing it, and we'll be able to, to do what we want, and no one will stop us from, from having all this fun that we have. And that's, that has been my, that's been part of my core from very early in my life till today. And I'm still having fun. Well, the, the other word I heard you use is um, team. You know, so having fun watching that team grow and, and bringing people up into that team. Everybody loves to be part of a winning team. And, and not just myself, but everybody. And, and, and people need to feel like they can think freely and openly. In order for people to think that way, it has to be okay for them to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So you need to create an environment for them to know that they can, they can make a mistake and... and, and and they're not going to be in trouble for it. Right. You know, and we all make mistakes. I make them every day. And I look back over the years and, and say, well, yeah, you had a successful career, but wait a minute, Google went right on by me and I didn't see it. What the hell happened? Why didn't I build Google? Or why didn't I build Facebook? You know, so you can look at it in that way. But one thing I learned about mistakes is there's an old saying called the knowledge of ignorance is the beginning of wisdom. And if you can take a mistake and acknowledge that it was your mistake, then you can learn and gain something from it. You're paying for it one way or another. You either lost, you either lost business, you lost money, or you lost a valuable employee. Something happened when you made your mistake. And if you try and pass it off to the times or economy or this or that or something that uh, Obama did, then you're, you're not doing yourself justice. Win from that mistake and become more knowledgeable, and you won't make the mistake again. That's great advice. 
We'll take the first question from the audience. Hi. Um, my question is, um, what advice do you have for us young people right now um, to foster the leadership skills that you had? Um, I know you took a lot of leadership positions in the corporations that you, you know, bought, sold, led. So any advice for us? Good question. I, my advice is to uh, a, be willing to work hard and, and, and find, find happiness within yourself. Uh, the world is not, the, the outside world is not going to bring happiness to you. It's within you. And, and if you do that, it will show in how you work every day. When you come into work and you're saying good morning to everybody and you're enthusiastic, it's, it, it catches on to other people. And you automatically become a leader just simply because you do that. That in itself is leadership. And, and my, my advice would be whatever you decide to do, whatever that first job is, you know, be enthusiastic about it. Don't look at it as this is what I'm going to do for the next 30 or 40 years. I mean, you may decide that that's what you want to do, but don't look at it in that way. Look at it as, this is the beginning of my entrepreneurship. This is the beginning of me building my value and my, what, what I bring to the world. Not necessarily just to this one company. Because the odds are, you're not going to go to one company and stay there for 25 or 30 years. You're going to move to a different... Each one is a new opportunity. Each one, you should carry your enthusiasm to it. And your, and, your, and your love for people. You know? And there will be people along the way that are maybe more difficult. And I guarantee you, they're wherever you go. So learn how to work with those difficult people. Don't, don't write them off. You know, work with them. And learn how to work with different personalities. If you're going to be a leader and you're going to build a large organization, you'll have different personalities that require different styles of how to motivate them. And uh, so that's the beginning of learning. It's just how do, how do you work with people and, you know, how do you embrace them and how do you bring that enthusiasm to your organization? You'll be valued greatly by whoever hires you if you do that. And I'd say just as you said about um, admitting a mistake, I'd say the, the same is true for working with other people. If you're not getting along with somebody, own that. Ask yeah. yourself, what, what am I doing wrong to make this yeah. relationship not work? Exactly. As opposed to immediately assuming, well, that person's, they're a jerk, they're not friendly, or whatever. I've worked with people that were, this, is, this goes back many years, when it seemed like a lot of management, senior management, were heavy drinkers. Mm-hmm. When I was a young man, I was 24 and 25, 26 years old, I, I had bosses who were alcoholics, mm-hmm. and I had to carry them home. You know, and uh, it was, I didn't like it. But I knew that the pathway for me was, was to be able to work with these kind of people. And, and that, uh, that you find a way to bring value to them. You know, some of them rode on, on your, will ride on your coattail because you're helping making them successful. It's okay. You know, uh, you will win in the end because you'll rise above it. But, you know, and some people are just, you know, a uh, little bit more difficult to work with. And they will be wherever you go. And, but if you bring that enthusiasm, they can't deny it. After a while, they have to respond to it. When you're pleasant to them and, and you're polite and you have energy and enthusiasm, they will. And if they don't, 
guess what happens? And this happened in my organization. We had a couple thousand people at the end. And, and the people who don't like to be in that environment don't fit, and they call themselves out. They leave on their own. You don't even have to fire them. If we did, we did. You know, we'd help them out if they didn't. But <laughs> you do have to do some of that, too, in, in the whole scheme of things. But for, for the most part, people love being in that kind of environment. And the other thing that, that I did um, is I made sure as the company grew beyond two, three hundred, four hundred, that there was a name tag in front of every spot so that I could come to know those people and I could call them by name. And they call me by name, not Mr. Zarley, but I was Jim to everybody in the organization, up and down, didn't care what level or anybody was. Because we were all business partners. It just so happened that I, I, I got to call the ties. But guess what? I never had to. I never had to. Because the consensus of me and my team was that we made decisions together. And I always felt that Collective minds will be much wiser than one mind trying to make all the decisions. So I love the way you look at businesses. I love the way you look at potential investments. Um, and one of, the, one of the rubrics you use is the four legs of the stool. So I'd love for you to share that with the students. What are the four legs of the stool? Is Brian Corey out here? He promised me, or he, he made me promise that I would tell that four legs of the stool story because Brian always talks about it. But... Uh, anytime, to me, the definition of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship really is planning, not, not high risk necessarily. There is risk involved, no question. So you're doing something no one else has done. But the more planning you can do, the lower you can take that risk. And the easier it is to raise money, by the way. And the first leg of the stool is no matter what you're doing, whether you're opening a, 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 a bakery on the corner or, gonna, or you have a global idea that could, could serve the world, the first idea, the first leg of that stool is to, to determine what size this could be. How big is the market? Do I serve a zip code? Do I serve a state? Do I serve a region? Do I serve the globe? How big is this? And define it as best you can. It may not be perfect, but the, the more research you can do to define the size of the opportunity, the better off you are. The second leg of the stool for Jim Zarley is, is how do I make money at it? What do I really need to have? Do I need a technical organization? And how many programmers would I need to just get it started, to get it going? Do I, you know, how big is that organization? And, and, and what's it going to cost me, very important question, what's it going to cost me to sell it? What's it going to cost me to get someone to buy this product or to have salespeople? Is it, going to, is it going to sell on my first visit to a customer or is it going to take me a year to sell it? Those are the kinds of things you need to understand in the model. And the, the, the more accurate you can be with it, the lower the risk. The third leg of the stool for me is capitalization, how much money do I have to have to prove it works? I always like to think in terms of a small startup as being a million dollar investment. And that could vary, but typically I think you probably need about a million bucks to really prove that what you have is a real product and you can make it work. Maybe it's two, maybe it's three, but most, most that I've done are in that million dollar range. 
and, and, and just prove to your investors, which if you're raising a million dollars, it's probably going to be your mom and dad and cousins and aunts and uncles and friends. You're not going to go to um, some investment company to raise a million dollars. And no one else is going to talk to you because you've never done it before. So raising that first tranche, you want to take the lowest risk possible to prove your concept. And then the fourth leg of the stool is the most important of all, and that's who's going to do it. Who's going to go from soup to nuts to make this work? Who's going to get the product built? Who's going to, who's going to, who's going to develop the business plan? Who's going to execute on the sales strategy? Who's going to go out and meet with the customers? Who's going to service the customer once we've done it? And, and who's going to take ownership of all that? Is it you? Is it you, the entrepreneur? That's fine if it is. And I think it's great that, that that's what you want to do. Is, are you going to be the person who runs it as it grows bigger? You know, you think about, about that whole execution. You can do the first three perfectly and miss the fourth one and fail. You can miss the first one or two a little bit. And the odds are it's going to be something a little different than what you thought it was going to be when you first started thinking about this idea. That's okay. But you, you've done deep research on it. It's a minor tweak. But the execution and the capitalization, if you miss those, you're, you're either out looking for money, more money or you can't get the job done and you failed. Team, team, team. People. We'll execution. The next, uh, next student's question. I want to start off by uh, thanking you for coming here. It's been wonderful so far. Thank you. Uh, my question relates more to uh, advertising. So in, uh, in recent years, there's been a trend of, of, of startup companies being snatched up for very obscene prices, uh, not because they have, uh, they've showed profit, but because they have a large user base. Uh, I just want to get uh, your opinion on if, if you believe this is a sustainable market, if you, can, if you think that you can turn these user bases into revenue large enough to... Uh, justify these prices, and if you'd recommend us young students to uh, forego seeking profits and building up user bases for companies. Let me see if I can understand the question right. Uh, did, so did, these companies like Snapchat and yeah. Yammer that don't really have a lot of revenue, but they have a lot of users, Yeah, is that something you'd advise them to pursue? Well, I, the key in the internet, everybody wants their own traffic. And uh, only two have really done it where they really own it. And that's Google and Facebook right now. And there are others that have various levels of success with it. It's always been a big part of what ValueClick is about, about representing. And that's why we have all the different divisions with all the different traffic sources and all the different areas. But, yeah, I think, I, I think that I think the idea of of spending money to get lots and lots of users and without an end game is a failed plan. I think if, if you're getting users, there needs to be something on the back end that says, when does it start to pay off? And, and how does it pay off? I mean, just having users, if you don't know what to do with them, isn't going to do anything for you. And you say, oh, wow, I've got, a, I got 10 million users. That's great. What are you doing? How are you making money with it? Are you selling advertising with it? Are you, what, you know, that's the question you have to ask yourself. So that's the first. If somebody came to me with an idea like that, I would want to know, where does it make money? I do not buy into, you know, grow a company, get volume, don't worry about profitability, it'll come later. 
bull. And, and, and the reason value clicks succeeded, if you look back in those times, it was about 400 public companies during just prior to the dot-com meltdown. A hundred of them survived it. Because they bought into a lot of what bankers were really pushing. Don't, and, they, and we got a lot of criticism when we were trying to take our company public. Why are you making money? You should be getting more volume. You should be getting more. Why are you making money? I said, well, that's the way I learned to grow business. And sorry, <laughs> that doesn't work. You know, by the way, all those bankers were looking for jobs like six months later right. after they got that book done. But, but you know, it's, 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 and it's not, I don't, wanna, I don't really want to overemphasize how the importance so much of, of being profitable. I want to emphasize the ability to be profitable. Because you may make a conscious decision that once you prove out your model that you're going to raise 10 or $50 million and you're going to take this $50 million and you're going to drive. But as long as you know that that model is back there, that you can always get it to profitability by scaling back some of your investment. So it's profitable is great. The ability to be profitable is the most important thing. So getting back to work environment and team, and you use the word fun a lot, and I know you, and I know you do like to have fun, but I don't want the students to misunderstand what In that In a good means. way. Yeah. In the work context. Um, and I love one thing you said to me. You said, John, I wasn't the easiest guy to work for, but people liked working for me. So maybe just talk for a minute about what does that mean in the workplace? It's, it's not all about fun and games. It's about getting stuff done. How did you balance those two things? You know, if, uh, if a person comes in with the, with the right, if they come in with average intelligence, with a great attitude and enthusiasm and willingness to work, they're going to make it. Tell you flat. Average intelligence makes it. What doesn't make I'll it... proof of that, by the way. <laughs> maybe average. <laughs> but, uh, but if you come in with, a, with an, uh, an attitude of entitlement, or you come in with an, with the attitude, well, you know, what time is I got to go now? I mean, time me, you know, before you finish your job, and you're watching the clock, and you don't seem to care. The the thing that that would boil me the quickest is a bright mind that doesn't care. They don't fit. I don't care how smart you are, how good you are. If you don't care, you're going to be poisoned to all of the other people in your organization. And you got to go, you know. But if you just have that desire, and you and you you like working with people, you're gonna you're gonna make it. You're gonna do just fine. Yep. And I think people with that desire and the right attitude, they don't mind being held accountable. You know, it's, it's let people know what's expected of them, and then make sure they get it done. I, you know, it just doesn't. It, you know, it doesn't take a lot. You know, to please your employer. Right. You know, it, all you have to show them is that you, are, you care about your job and that you want to do a good job for them. Right. Uh, you know, and all the other stuff. Not everybody is going to be an entrepreneur like yourselves. You know, some people are going to be just great employees. And they don't want to open their own business. They don't want to take the risk that's involved in it. They don't want to do all that. They just want, they want security. And, and, and that's your responsibility as an entrepreneur to give them that security. You know, in those companies that I acquired that were in trouble, 
and we had to go and make some really tough decisions. Any time I did, I would gather the people together after we made the tough decision, which might be including laying off 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the company, that I would call the folks together in a group like this, and I would say, this was not a good day. You know, uh, we lost people that we shouldn't have lost. Um, and I promise you that I will never allow this company to get in that position again. And that what we're going to build together is going to be something that's fun and exciting, and that we're going to be profitable. And you can look at it two ways. If you had 500 people and 250 of them had to go away, you saved 250 jobs. Because had someone not come along and made these tough decisions, all 500 would have been gone. So that's my attitude towards it. And when you explain that to people openly, honestly, they get it. They understand. They become part of the team very quickly. And they say, yeah, you know, that, you're right. We weren't making, I know we were losing money. It wasn't working. We were gonna, everybody was afraid that their job was going was to go away. So well, guess what? It isn't. We had to make some tough decisions, but we made them, and we're, we're on our way. And now, from here on out, it's positive. And I promise you, I won't ever put you in that position again where you have to worry whether your job's going to be here or not. Excellent. We'll take the next question from the students. Uh, thank you for coming to speak with us. Uh, this is a double-pronged type of question, but because of your position and experience in marketing, what is your opinion on the ethics of the dynamic between uh, marketing and consumer privacy? And what do you believe the role should be between personalization and marketing strategies and the marketing strategies of companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google? Well, let me take the first part of that on on privacy, we lost privacy long before the internet because some of the biggest sellers of, of information were the federal and state governments. And I found that out when I did what I did with the Department of Motor Vehicle, that your information was already being sold, so <laughs> don't worry about it. What I do believe is that personal data, personal information should not be sold. I said, but so far as, you know, I, I'm not in favor of that. I am fine with the internet tracking what the computer is doing. Not you by name, you by phone number or address or any personal information, but so far as what the computer is buying or, or with an intent to serve up an ad to you that makes sense, that you might be interested in. So if you buy from Amazon, I assume you probably do, most people do. You notice that when you buy, that when you go down the page, that all the things you bought are up there. And you know, saying, well, this is what you bought for. Maybe you want some more, right? I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. But so far as personal data, personal information, I believe that should be protected. I don't think our world does it. I don't think our country does it. But I think that's the way advertising should work. Was that the whole question? Yeah. So it takes us back to 96. I was six years old, I think. I can't remember. Maybe five. Um, take us back to 96. So the Internet's happening. You've yep. had success with the company you sold to ADP. Yep. What, was, what drew you to the hosting company? What, what, kind of, what were the opportunities you were looking at, and why oh. did you jump in there? Okay, if you, if you remember 96, uh, AOL was dropping CDs out of airplanes so that everybody could get onto AOL, and they were the, they were the, the company of choice. The small company I went to uh, was, was trying to be an internet access company. 
And um, these were very clueful, smart technologists that were far ahead of the game that, without knowing it. Yep. And when I looked at companies losing money and, you know, and I looked at it and I said, yeah, you guys are trying to be a tier one uh, provider of internet access. That game's over. AOL won it back then. You know, no, none of this other stuff was even around. I said, yeah, that game's over. They're selling it for 1995. And another company next door to you just went public by the name of Netcom. Do you remember that name? Uh -huh. So, and I said, well, you know, this internet access, you need 40, 50, 60 million dollars to build a backbone to, to do it. You know, and they said, yeah, well, but you know, we have this other thing we do, shell account and, and web hosting. And I said, they're posting. <laughs> I said, well, how's that? And, 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 and here they were trying to be a national uh, internet provider when they only had modems in San Francisco. <laughs> it was a joke. And, but here they had web hosting, and they did it better than anybody in the industry. And it wasn't a commodity yet. They had web hosting, and it could, and it could, and it could serve the globe. Right? You can sell web hosting from, uh, from Mountain View, California to anybody in the world. And I said, my gosh, we're missing the real opportunity is web hosting. And so I immediately invested in that company and took it in that direction and said, we'll, let, we'll continue to provide internet access to the people here in the Bay Area, but web hosting we're taking outside. And then we went out and we started looking at other business that were doing web hosting. We found highway technologies down in Florida. We acquired it. Mm -hmm. And then we, were, we literally had the plane on the tarmac running to begin our roadshow to take it public when Vario bought us. Oh, wow. And, uh, and whew, right. glad they right. did because now it's a commodity and it's free. You right. know, but we, right. was, we, were, we were getting a pretty good chunk of money provided back in those days. But do you think it was your time at RCA of going into new organizations and having to sort of ferret out what the opportunities were? Was that what helped you? when you That was all RCA because, because as they sent me from one location, I wasn't really looked at as a turnaround guy, but it just happened that any place I went was in trouble. They were letting someone go. The business was in trouble. It either had union problems or it had productivity problems or lack of sales, any one of those things. And you know, I found they're all... They are all common sense right, when right. you really get down to it. You know, I happen to love turnarounds because uh, I'm not the greatest uh, idea guy. You know, I didn't come up with value click. Brian Corey up did that. You know, I love this idea, and I say, "Oh, good, I'll do that. <laughs> I'll do that with you." <laughs> and the same with local market launch here in town. You know, that's Brian's idea. It's not my. I'm not the idea guy. But if somebody messes it up, I can figure out how to fix it. So that was kind of my strength, and I, I still to this day like looking at businesses that aren't being run very well that might be losing money but have, in my mind, an opportunity to get to profitability. Yeah, well, don't undersell yourself. I think having that ability to, to see those opportunities when companies are losing money, that's where most people don't see the opportunity, right? Yep. They just see the risk. Yep. So we'll take the next student question. Well, thank you for coming to speak with us. Uh, my question was, according to the Peter Principle, a manager rises to his or her own level of incompetence. Uh, if you were the manager in question, how would you realize that you are no longer fit or competent for the position, and how would you break through that? This is a, that's a great question. 
is very important. I can relate to it because I replaced <laughs> myself about a year and a half ago. And, and I had taken, I thought I was the right guy for ValueClick, for the, for, the, for, the, for the trip that we were taking. And that was to be able to provide uh, solution, digital solutions, to companies that were advertising, whether it was mobile, video, display, whether it was affiliate marketing, whether it was cost per lead, cost per action, whatever it was. And that's what drove me to put these components together. Um, the, the technology that was available in 2006, 7, 8, wasn't fast enough to take the data from all those various places and bring it together into a, one central area and still serve an ad up fast enough within a quarter of a second. No, there was no technology that could take that much information, process it that quick. When that became possible, the opportunity of, of utilizing data more efficiently became a real, a real opportunity to grow businesses. And I thought I was successful in bringing these pieces together, and all my pieces all made money. I had great presidents running each one of those divisions. My last acquisition was a data company, a company that really knew and understood how to take all that information and to make something better with it. And I was able to convince the CEO of that division to be the CEO of ValueClick. And I knew then it was time for me to step away. So in answer to your question, how do you know? I don't know what the magic is. I just think that you have to be big enough to know, you know what, I'm not the best guy for this. We need somebody smarter. You know, we need somebody that knows what I don't know to take, take it to that next level. And, and I, you know, part of me kind of lost, uh, you know, you feel that loss. Every time I sold a company, I felt like I lost one of my children because it was my family that I, that I sold. It, it, this is a similar situation. I stayed as chairman, in fact, still chairman of that company because we haven't closed the deal yet next month, hopefully. But, um, but I think you just have to know when it's time, when somebody else is the better, is the better solution. So again, self-awareness. Hi, Brian. As it, Brian, would you stand up? This is Brian Coryat, everybody. Brian Cor Value Click and Local Market Launch. Give me a hand. Yeah. Another internet pioneer in our midst. So, so I love it because Brian always goes around and says, well, Jim's oh, he's my mentor. Brian is my mentor. Right? <laughs> you know, and we mentor each other. And he is really a guy that just has ideas. He's just smart as, a lot smarter than I am. But he is, he just is fun to work with. He believes all those things I'm telling you about having fun, about creating, that's Brian Coriat. That's what he does. And local market launches hiring, so be sure to see Brian. <laughs> <laughs> not too many, though. <laughs> yeah, not today. Not too many. Maybe in a couple of weeks. Um, so, so, Jim, you've had experience in low technology, the restaurant chain, and other, and other what would be considered sort of low tech, and a lot of high tech. What, would you, what advice would you give to a student today if they were trying to figure out which direction they wanted to go? I think you go where your passion is. You know, a, a, you know an example, Texas Roadhouse, I love this organization. They've got a great culture in that organization. Their mission statement is four words. And two of them are the same. Legendary service, legendary food. That's it. 
end of story. And the founder of this is a person just like us. He, he, he worked in a restaurant, worked at Bennigan's. He wrote on a napkin his dream of building this restaurant called Texas Roadhouse. He decided finally that he was going to do it. He borrowed money from his parents. He borrowed money from his neighbors. He overdrew on his credit cards to get the first restaurant going. And uh, he's the most humble guy you want to meet. His name is Kent Taylor. Uh, Kent now has, um, has opened, been responsible for picking every single location. And he has 434 now locations. Took the company public, probably worth three, four hundred million, I would guess. I don't even know, but I know it's hundreds of millions. But if he was sitting here today, he'd be the most humble guy. And he's 58 years old, and he'd out-ski everybody in the place. He's just <laughs> unbelievable shape. But, um, but here, it, it, you know, my point is, there's, you can make a lot of money in a lot of areas. It doesn't have to be high-tech. If that's your passion, then obviously pursue it. But 65% of the people who run Texas Roadhouses started, that are managed today, making good money, started washing dishes or working on waiting tables. 65% of them. And, uh, that, you know, and going back to that first job I had, washing trucks, you know, I'm sure that every one of those people that are running those stores today never intended to wash dishes their whole life or to wait on tables their whole life. They came in, they saw the energy, they got caught up in it, they, they became a very positive force behind it, and now are leading it. There's a lot to like in that story. I like the essentially business goal, business dream on a napkin. I mean, you don't have to have a Wharton MBA to have a great business. No, I think most of my ideas were on piece of crap, scrap paper or something, right, Brian? And we were, we were, you know, I think we were doing that today again. But anyway, <laughs> but my friend, uh, Kent Taylor, kept the napkin. Uh-huh. He, he has it framed. <laughs> it's great. That's wonderful. But there's, there's lots of ways to make money. It doesn't have to be in high tech. You know? High tech is fun. What I love about high tech, I'm jealous of you guys because you're all young and you got all these years in front of you. In all of my 50 years of working, I have never known a more exciting time to build a business and to be an entrepreneur than it is today. If you look at what's going on with Internet and technology, we're in the beginnings. We're in the infancy still. People ask me, what inning are we in? I say, hell, I'm not sure we're in the first inning yet. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of thing, opportunities. And, 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 and while the Internet itself, what Google is doing, yes, they own that component. But there's a, a, a thousand other things that need to be done, the kinds of things that Ryan is doing, the mobile business and the thing, opportunities in the mobile business and the video business and developing your own video ads and doing stuff like that. Those are all exciting things. And, you know, it's going to be that way, in my mind, probably for the next 30 years or better. And it is just isn't a better time. Whatever you're doing, I would bet that most of you are working high tech 20, 30 years from now. Because that's where everything's at. That's where it's going. But they're still going to need, you're still going to need restaurant tours. You're still going to need all of these other things, these other chains that can be built. Yep. Yeah, your kids will laugh at you one day, just as my kids laugh at me, when they see like a payphone or something in a movie and ask me what that is. So things, things are moving at light speed, and I think this really is a great time. 
for you guys because you can start a business with such a small amount of money today with Amazon services and all the open software. Um, so no John, excuses. John's, John's going to, he'll, he'll be happy to fund you any of you guys want to start. <laughs> you know, he's, I'll be writing <laughs> checks after class. Line up. <laughs> yes. Happy Halloween. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll take the next student's question. Hello. Thanks for your wise words thus far. Um, so ValueClick recently changed its name to Conversant. So I was wondering what the main reason behind changing the company's name and what is involved um, in the process of rebranding a well-known company. In addition, what is the importance of rebranding a company's image and how often should a successful company consider rebranding itself if necessary at all? You know, I was afraid that question was going to come up Uh-oh. because, uh, you know, it, we always felt that the name, as we continued to acquire businesses, that it wasn't going to really define who we were. Personally, myself, and I'm sure Brian as well, being the founder, we're kind of attached to that name, right? We kind of loved it. You know, but I didn't get in the way of it changing because I knew in my heart this probably is the right thing to do, to really brand what, more what we do as a total business. So I wasn't really entirely for it, but I supported it because I felt a, that the leadership needed that support, and that ultimately it was probably the right thing to do. I was sorry to see it go, and I still call it value click. So, uh, but my business cards say conversion. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Does that answer, did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. And I'm the same way about brand. When a company in our portfolio comes and says, I think we need to change the name, I often say, I think we've got other problems to solve first. <laughs> I will change the name. I fought it for at least 10 years. You know, but once I turned the reins over, it was time to let somebody else take their vision and go with it. And I knew it wasn't going to hurt the company. You know, it's just that I was sad to see the name kind of go away. I like all the names. I thought, I thought Commission Junction was a great name. I love that name. And uh, Mediaplex, I thought, was a great name. And I, I thought Value Click Brands was a great name, where we owned our brands. And I thought Detomi was a great name for a company that is involved with one-to-one marketing and data. It was, it was, if you look up the name, it, it's one-to-one marketing. And, and, I, and frankly, I was, I, I was voting for the name of Detomi to be the name, because it really had a, a great description. Our, our CEO felt that that the rest of the organization wouldn't feel warm and fuzzy about it because they didn't want any one of our current names right. to be the name. Right. So I said, okay, yeah, let's go. Let, but just keep, keep growing the business, okay? Right. We'll pick a neutral name yeah. and keep growing. <laughs> get a name and grow the business. Right. Well, I know one thing the students are interested in, I get, I get questions about public relations, PR. I've seen you on TV. I know a number of the students have seen you on TV talking about your company, speaking to different constituents. What advice do you have for handling PR um, as a small company? Um, and to what extent should the students be pursuing PR at the beginning stages of their startup? When you, I, I wouldn't even think about it when you're doing a startup. You know, there's so many things to consider. And PR is after you've really proven it. Because think about it. If you go out trying to get PR before you've actually proven the model, you might, be, might embarrass yourself. Because your model may change. And I would wait until you've defined the product, until you have gone that second stage and said, you know what? We've proven the product out. 
with that first investment that we had, whether it's a million or two million, whatever it is. We've proven it out. Now it's time to raise a bigger chunk of money to scale this company more quickly. And inside of that then needs to be a marketing program that says, here's how we need to either get investor relations, public relations. And the way that you would do that once you get to that stage would be to get involved in all the various conferences, trade shows. Uh, I'm not a big uh, fan of big booths at trade shows, but I think having hospitality suites where you're calling in customers and you're selling and you're holding people accountable for sales when they come home, right? that's the kind of in, in involvement. If you sit on those panels, you're, you're talking to the to whatever industry you're involved in. You sit on, and they always have, typically in these, they have several various panels that talk about certain things. I would have the PR people get involved in that. And then locally, if there's a value in, in, in your local advertising, then, get, then it's time to bring the newspapers in. I wouldn't bring newspapers in before you really are sound in what you're talking about and that you're certain that your model is what it is. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about when the dot-com meltdown hit. Everybody that was in the business, whether you were doing better or worse than somebody else, everybody was valued based on how much cash you had left because the market was assuming everybody was going broke. Well, when that, when that happened, it was kind of like, it doesn't really matter. You didn't have any analysts covering you anymore. They all headed for the hills. They're all looking for jobs somewhere else. And, and um, so a newspaper came to me, and a lo- local one here, uh, in the, between here and L.A., and, uh, and said, well, what do you think about Wall Street? And I said, well, you know, realistically, because we're all trading at our cash value, uh, Wall Street, it doesn't matter anymore because they're not covering us. And we're just all, it's, you know, the, the people who are going to survive are the people who are running profitable businesses. And over time, as you prove that you can scale and make, continue to be profitable, then they'll be important. The headlines came out, Zarley says Wall Street doesn't count anymore. So <laughs> I would just say be careful because what they're looking for, they're, they're, they're building content. Just like in our business, we build content for our websites. They were building content. They didn't really care if they misquoted me. They were just looking for, they were looking for that. And when you, when you finally go to the press or start bringing the press in, you should look at them in the same way. What can I get from them? What is it that I'm going to get out of this? Other, you know, if, it's, if it's for my own brand, then I'd say forget it. You know, I mean, at least Jim Zarley. Because I've never been about building Jim Zarley brand. You know, Jim Zarley's brand will be built by the performance of the businesses that he's ever run. And it, whether anybody remembers my name is... I don't care. You know, I want them to remember the businesses that were successful. That's what I think is important. So I'm probably that way to a fault. I think if Warren Buffett were here, he'd say that's, he wouldn't agree with that, but he thinks that you should do far more of your own brand recognition, and I, I was never a fan of it. If I would, uh, would recommend you, uh, you read a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. It's a great read. I would advise you read that. That'll talk to you a little bit about branding. Yeah, I think the, 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 this audience gets influenced by TechCrunch and Pando Daily and some of these online um, sites that they're always 
I, I should say always, often hyping the opportunity before the opportunity really exists. The color was one from a couple of years ago. It was a poor company that got so much hype, there's no way they could have lived up to it, and they didn't. Um, also, just sort of hyping the fundraising. I never quite understood that. You raised money. That's not something to go celebrate. That's something to hunker down and then execute on. Yeah. And don't, don't, don't uh, sort of throw well, a big party ro- about it. The roadsides are full of failed businesses who tried to overhype yep. and didn't focus on the, what's, what's uh, the substance of the business. Yep. And to, to hype a fundraising, I don't get it. Right. I don't get it. You know, if you're bringing money in, you have a responsibility to those people who, who gave you their money to be successful in running that business. If you're hyping to overvalue a company, you're going to have a lot of unhappy investors that said, you know what, you sold me a bill of goods, and you told me that this company was already worth $50 million when it's only worth $5 million. You know, now I'm stuck here with a $50 million valuation, and you've got some hostile shareholders on your hands at that point. And, and, and it gets much more difficult for you. Yeah, and I think it's harder to, to pivot and change direction when it's very public and you're out there and everyone yeah. knows what you're doing. It's easier to sort of mess around in, the, in yeah. a little bit uh, you know, your, a little bit of the darkness. Your investors are your partners. They're, they are just like your employees. Are your partners? Your investors are your partners. You have a responsibility to... To, they've been trusted in you. you, know, you have a responsibility to make a money. Right. Let's thank Jim for being here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.